Can we use Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, published in 1868, to teach us about the average 19th century Britain's thoughts on the colony of India? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. This is Elizabeth, and welcome to the April 13th episode of Footnoting History, because the best stories are always in the footnotes. This morning, we will be discussing how we can use a 19th century novel to get at the average Britain's thoughts on the empire, especially in the wake of the Indian mutiny. Using contemporary novels is actually one of my most favorite ways to try and understand what was common knowledge or socially acceptable during various time periods. For example, Ellen Montgomery's most famous work is Anne of Green Gables, but it is in her book, Rilla of Ingleside, that we find out about the Canadian home front during World War I. Or how in Agatha Christie's pre-World War II books, she had no problem including statements or descriptions of characters that were anti-Semitic. So why do I think I can use a novel not only to find out what the author thought, but what his or her audience did? Because if the author included something so far out in left field, then the average reader would be completely thrown and taken out of the story. These novels would not be as successful as they are. Instead, the descriptions are part of the novel's background and, according to the theory, which was promoted by Edward Said, if they reflect the average reader's experiences or thoughts, they are taken for granted. Join us as we determine if this theory holds up in the case of Wilkie Collins's The Moonstone. I'm going to focus on the prologue of the story, as I don't want to include too many spoilers, but rest assured, the theme of who are the villains and who are the heroes is constantly being questioned throughout the novel and subverts what we might expect. The Moonstone opens with a letter written by an English gentleman to explain why he is shunning his cousin, John Herncastle, another English gentleman. Both had served in India and were there for an uprising in 1799, and it's there that the trouble begins. Our narrator tells us the legend of a gem known as the Moonstone, which is so fabulous and sacred it is always protected by a team of Brahmin or Indian priests. After successfully putting down the uprising, the English soldiers and their camp followers find their way into the palace treasury where they, quote, disgrace themselves, though, quote, good-humoredly. The plundering continues all night, although our narrator sought to calm his men and stop them. The crux of the matter stems not from the plundering soldiers, however, but in the actions of John Kerncastle, who seems frenzied after the day's events and is searching for the moonstone. Our narrator hears horrible cries from another room, rushes in, only to find his cousin standing behind the body of two dead Indians and a third one who is dying. His cousin holds a dagger with blood dripping from it. The dying man curses Herncastle and states that the Moonstone will have its revenge. Herncastle, however, denies any wrongdoing, either in murder or taking the gem, and with good reason, as the British general sends word the next day that any soldier found plundering the palace's treasury will be hanged. The deterrent is too late, however, and our narrator, shocked at the behavior of his cousin, never speaks to him again, although he fears that his cousin will live to regret his actions or, if Herncastle gives the gem away, the recipient will live to regret them. The Moonstone then jumps 40 years into the future and takes off from there. That, then, is the scene which starts the story. A stolen gem, a cursed British family, and the attempts by a group of Brahmin to return the Moonstone to its allegedly rightful place. Now we needed to add in some more details about Collins, the relations between Britons and Indians, and who was reading the work to get a better idea of what it means for British attitudes towards members of the empire in the 19th century. Wilkie Collins not only had one of the greatest first names ever, he was a 19th century writer most famous for two works, The Moonstone, which we're discussing, and The Woman in White. Both of these novels are presented as a conglomeration of narratives for multiple characters, as if one is reading trial testimony from various witnesses. 
This style was no accident as Collins had trained as a lawyer, although he never practiced. His career instead was as a journalist and a writer. And while not necessarily relevant to this topic, his real life was a stark contrast to how we usually picture the very proper Victorians. Collins kept two separate families and houses only a short distance apart, and although he was married to neither woman, with one he had three children, and with the other he actually attended her wedding to another man, but she eventually returned to him. Unfortunately for Collins, he was diagnosed with gout, and his doctor, adhering to the treatment protocol of the day, prescribed laudanum or opium. Eventually, Collins Daly, quote, took more laudanum than would have sufficed to kill a ship's crew or company of soldiers. The Moonstone is considered to be the first detective novel, sorry Poe, and it contains many characteristics of the genre, right down to the detective with the peculiar personal habits. It tells the story of a famous gem stolen from India during an uprising in 1799 and then stolen again in the 1840s from the British family who lay claim to it. The work contains lovesick heroines, opium-addicted protagonists, and three Indians out to take back the jewel with everything at their disposal, including mesmerism, an enjoyable topic for another podcast. Collins wrote The Moonstone in 1868, although he very deliberately set the events in the late 1840s. Why deliberately? So as to avoid the taint of the Indian Mutiny of 1857. The Indian Mutiny is known by a great many names, including the Sepoy Mutiny, the Sepoys being the name for the Indian soldiers, the Indian Rebellion, and most strikingly, India's first war of independence. Following the increase in power of the East Indian Company in the 18th century, India had been, for all intents and purposes, a British colony, although it was not under direct rule of the British crown. While there are several causes for the mutiny, and most of them were simmering for decades, the last straw was the introduction of a new rifle by the British to the Sepoys, which required greasing. Initially, the tallow used for the greasing was to be made either of beef or pork fat, both of which caused problems for the mostly Hindu and Muslim soldiers. Fortunately, a British officer realized the issue that this would cause, but unfortunately, rumors were already rampant that the animal fat was in use. This discord was ramped up by civilian disquiet until there was all-out rebellion. The account that destroyed any potential sympathy the average Briton had for the mutineers was about the slaughter of 206 European women and men children living what is now Kanpur. Even though none of the Sepoys actually took part in the killings, the revolt was forever blackened by it. False and exaggerated rumors of rape and murder of white women by Indian men further incensed those back home. British soldiers in India were busy carrying out their own forms of vigilante justice, and by the time it was all over, the casualties on the Indian side far outnumbered those of Europeans. When the dust finally settled, Queen Victoria sent the East India Company packing and firmly took control. Back home in England, Collins and his good friend Charles Dickens wrote up a description of the mutiny which focused on and further exaggerated the actions against the Europeans by the Indians. It was this version which became solidified in people's minds when they discussed the Indian mutiny. But how did this affect ideas about the empire in general, or colonies? While the mutiny itself was seen as bad, 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 and many mid-19th century Britons saw the members of this revolt as pure evil, literature helps us see that the attitude by Britons towards Indians was not a one-dimensional as one of distrust, although that was certainly present. For example, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four, which was written in 1890 or a generation after the Indian Mutiny, includes a story within a story about the revolt, and it is referenced by a white character who, do, who does describe the mutineers as black devils who cut white men and women into ribbons. But the same character's story also demonstrates how dishonorable British soldiers could be. In essence, the literature reflects the 19th century British attitude towards the empire and its colonists, conflicted. As mentioned, Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, though written in 1868, was about events alleged to have taken place in the 1840s, before the mutiny. 
Why, then, do I think it can reveal to us the varied and complex thoughts about the mutiny and, in larger aspects, the Empire? Because of audience reception. It is considered the most popular novel by Wilkie Collins. The Moonstone was serialized in a magazine edited by Charles Dickens and called All the Year Round, which had a large readership averaging 30 to 40,000 readers a week. People clamored to read more in the weekly journals. Chapters were published one after another. Even Dickens, who continued to hold on to anti-Indian feelings even a decade after the mutiny, enjoyed the work and supported his friend by publishing it. In contrast, later works by Collins dropped in popularity after the Moonstone as he became a man with a social mission. In fact, one of his friends stated that this mission was the cause for his decline in the popularity of his work after The Woman in White and The Moonstone. You might be able to tell from his lifestyle that Collins didn't believe in the institution of marriage, and of course, because he had three children, he thought the English laws on illegitimacy were ridiculous and backward. These are reflected in his later works. Arguably, then, Collins' strident voicing of his atypical beliefs became a turnoff for his audience, but this came after the Moonstone. Now, scholars have also described his portrayal of the visitors from India and the Moonstone as more positive than the typical British attitude following the Indian Mutiny, especially when compared with Charles Dickens. But if all Britons felt poorly about Indians, then the Moonstone would not have achieved the popularity it did. In fact, from the prologue, from the letter of the man telling the story of his cousin, John Herncastle, killing three Indians defending the jewel, one can tell that this story is not going to be one of evil natives versus the good white man. Collins opening his novel by portraying the Indian protectors of the gem as loyal but superstitious men, and a white officer in the British Army as a man of evil actions, failed to turn off the readers of all the year round. Instead, the public seemingly ate it up and gladly bought it when it was published as a whole novel. Collins deliberately included details about an uprising in India in the 1790s in which the British soldiers come off worse than their Indian foes. Perhaps he was trying to undo all the influence his work with Dickens had on the public mind? Based on the popularity of the novel, however, it seems that Collins was not alone in his view of the colonized. Apparently, the average Briton did not see all colonists as dastardly black devils and the white colonizers as virtuous civilizing forces. Instead, the good and bad was represented in each, a reminder that although the practices of the colonized might seem bizarre to the colonizers, such as the use of mesmerism by the Indians' intent on taking back the moonstone, the moral high ground was not assured. This has been Footnoting History. If you liked our podcast, be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as information on upcoming podcasts. Join us next week, when we'll be discussing the miraculous talking head of King Edmund. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.